Welcome to Social Justice Matters, a podcast from Social Justice Ireland. I'm Colette Bennett, Research and Policy Analyst. Today we're taking a step back to our Social Policy Conference 2018, From Here to Where, and an interview with actor, playwright and poet Emmett Kerman. Uh, an actor, or sorry, an artist, let me put it that way, an activist. What brought you to activism? Um, I suppose it's... <clears throat> I'm not really I'm kind of uncomfortable with the kind of the term when people say, are you an activist, you know? I think activists for me are people who are, you know, agitating and instigating for change to, you know, collectives and they're basically bringing people together in groups <clears throat> to force, you know, political entities to do things. So what has happened with my work is the work itself and the writing I do, I think, has a has a... A political tone that's that's possibly hopefully agitating or pushing for social. How change would you define that tone, Emmett? Um, dissident. The, you know, the idea that the artist is not moralist is not, but can be activist and can be dissident. Can essentially say things in safe spaces like theatres that you can't really get away with saying on places like RTE or even on the you know the, the the airwaves and even in a lot of like mainstream newspapers. You know, theatre is kind of a last analog space. You know, I can get up there and say a lot of things that won't be heard. You know, by people that might want to sue me. <laughs> yeah. uh, and you, them, w- you know? Would it be fair to say that? You view theatre as a driver of social change? It, it can be, but the, the thing that what happens is, I think it's more of a, now what's happening for, for theatre to be a driver of social change in the way it might have been at the beginning of the 20th century, you know, you had plays that were incredibly political, like um, Dune and the Paycock, you know, it was on 18 months just after the war, was the, war the civil uh, Civil War just started, you know, so there was talk in the play about extrajudicial killings. Plays then stopped being that kind of current, that relevant television and film took that over but as television and film has become more kind of conservative it doesn't. So what happens is theatre can start as a hotbed of that place but it needs to be taken further than like the internet the democratisation of that kind of image not image, that the democratisation of that message can reach beyond the kind of analogue space that the theatre is. You know, you can't download a theatre (laughs) video or, you know, from anywhere, but you can make it there. It can become a hotbed of... uh, uh, In the same way, you know, it always was in Weimar days and and so forth and and all the way through, you know, the the, the Harlem Renaissance and so forth, you know, the way it has been through 20th century history, you know. Losing my voice. Sorry. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. And, and like, in particular, what kind of issues do you think touch on the type of social change you'd like to see? Well... The, the the last poetry play, the, well, Dublin Old School, for example, is a, yeah. is a, is a, is, a, is a play about homelessness, and I wrote it in two thousand fourteen, and so it's a it's a, a a play about addiction, and far be it from those either of those subjects changing, they have gotten worse, but um, so there's there's a there's a story in there because you always owe people a narrative, otherwise you're just giving them agi prop, and nobody's going to show up to you know. You're, you're Trotsky, I kind of... <laughs> not that I'm a trot. She's <laughs> used a derogatory term nowadays for anybody who's a left-winger. Uh, but, you know, nobody's going to show up to Agiprop. You owe them a, a good time. You owe them a narrative. But if you can put a narrative or an idea in there that then gets adopted by popular culture, it gets consumed somewhere within the culture, somewhere within the group psyche. That small message about treating, let's say, addicts 
with humanity, treating addicts with a humane sense. Maybe the fact that the prohibition of drugs is something that's not working for us anymore. Maybe the push towards the decriminalisation of addicts would be something that would be better. And then also putting a human face to, you know, people who are homeless and how they actually got there and why they got there. Because usually when we see someone who's homeless, we just see the tip of the iceberg. So if you can deploy a narrative that shows these people as 360 rounded individuals, and ultimately it's the same reason why movies like Rosie were very good, if you have a, a narrative, people can't attack that. Because often what happens when we see it, like um, uh, Brita Cash, you know, when she was, I don't mean to use her name, just to, to make a, a political point, but people went after her when they seen that she spent the night in the Garda station. They picked apart her life. There's, what happens, you can kind of ring fence yourself with art that has a political message, that has a social message, because essentially it's a narrative that exists only on the page, but hopefully it, 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 can, uh, it can change people's ideas. And Heartbreak as well was, was a poem that I wrote, which was part of a larger play called Riot, which was kind of a counter-celebration to the 1916 uh, celebrations that were going on. And Heartbreak is a poem that I wrote about a young working-class woman who uh, gets pregnant and is living on the fault lines of society. And it's also about, you know, the toxicity of kind of men being able to kind of talk to women in a way and treat women in a way uh, that's just completely unacceptable but seems to have been normalised and it also well I hope it kind of added to the abortion referendum debate prior to that you know and one, one of the areas, because you mentioned to me beforehand that you, you would have um, strong opinions on I think is education yeah like you know I'm I'm kind of, I think I said this in another thing before, it was like I'm, I'm a walking analogy for, you know, free toward level education. And, um, you know, we all agree that education is brilliant, but I think one of the great, one of the, the only kind of, not one of the only, but one of the, the best things that any kind of Irish government has done in the last 30 years to improve social mobility, and now I say that with a caveat, uh, is free toward level education. You know, it's, it, it, it allows an entire generation of people like myself who would never have been given the opportunity to go to toward level, to get the opportunity to, to yeah, to, to just get themselves educated, you know, without becoming financially crippled by the time they leave, you know? Mm. Yeah. And, the, and the thing, I think the thing I was talking to you about before was the need for us to maintain free toward level education and to resist going forward for one of the things is to resist all efforts made by any government to try and reintroduce toward level education fees. Um, it's something that neoliberal governments have been doing, conservative governments have been doing the world over. They've done it in Britain. Thatcher did it. They did it in America in the 1960s. And it's usually because what happens is when you get, like in the 60s in America and in Britain, you know, in the 1970s, when you get working class kids, middle class kids, people of colour, uh, people from minorities all working together. Usually that kind of foment starts in college education campuses. And a lot of people, especially in America, I think it was the Rockefellers basically did a thing called the Trilateral Commission where they went, well, what is all this? Why are white middle-class kids who should only be concerned in this neoliberal paradise with getting themselves ahead in the extreme form of competition that we want them to? Why do they find they have... Um, parity with these other people you know why do they want change um, so they basically reintroduce third level education fees and make it impossible for people to progress to third level education and there's another aspect to it I believe and this is just my own opinion that debt is a very strong controller of populations Michael Noonan you know 
and other politicians in the Fine Gael government are continually talking to us about taking on debt for houses, taking on debt for unaffordable houses. And debt is something that makes the citizenry of any republic supplicant. Because you're less likely to riot if you have a debt of... like a massive debt hanging around your neck and you certainly are if you are a person in your 20s and you come out and you've got 60,000 euros worth of debt already even before you have got your first house underneath your belt so the you know social mobility social change and a better educated population to all levels helps and but also as the reason I was saying about social mobility it's not just about giving people the opportunity to get away from whatever area of social degradation they're from it's also about allowing those people or giving those people the education and the tools to go back to those areas and improve those areas as well free third level education shouldn't be a get out of jail free card for governments to essentially allow them to maintain poverty in certain areas, but give people a kind of carrot saying you can get yourself out of here. Yeah, and you're you're also, you have very strong views in terms of whether there should be a constitutional provision for the right to housing. Yeah, this is something I should say, you know, I am just an actor and I am just a poet, so a lot of these things are kind of cobbled together ideas from greater minds and intellects than my own, but um, you know, it's to to do with the reading. As an artist, you have a way of framing them, I think. I suppose, yeah, yeah. I, I think, I, you know, we have we have the, the the constitutional convention. There's a lot of kind of things that they're trying to change to the constitution right now, but a lot of them are low lying fruit. You know, the the blasphemy law, yeah, great. Take um, the 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 part about the women's right places in the home. Take it out. That's all fine. But the really radical things. You know, like putting into the constitution that every successive government from here on out is legally bound to reduce our carbon emissions and make it uh, punishable by the courts. Also, you know, we have, and I know it's like the, the principles of social policy, say, they give us a framework to actually how we should treat people and how we should provide for housing, but none of these things are legally binding. So if we were to put in an amendment to the constitution, it's not going to solve the housing crisis overnight, but it will change attitudes in the same way we expect to be educated at a primary level. And, you know, there's school procurements for that and there's there's agencies that are set up in order to make that happen. If we were to do this in the same way Sweden, Portugal, Finland have done it, it would start a national conversation around around housing, about the right to a home and we would actually start to figure out and people could actually ask the question well who is against this? And I think in the the constitutional uh, what was it? The constitutional convention 84% of people were in favour of it and I think the only people that aren't in favour of it are you know right wing governments that essentially believe that it will entitle people will feel entitled to something that they don't deserve. Yeah, and you, you mentioned right-wing governments. You, 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 I think you are you talking to me something about you believe there's a kind of a, a false liberalism uh, about right-wing governments. Yeah, the, you know, it's it essentially you know there's there's a it's what what bell hooks you know feminist theorists would have called lifestyle feminism or lifestyle uh, liberalism. Um, the liberalism is checked by a fiscal conservatism. Um, they almost give you a kind of a free liberalism to do whatever you want. You know, you can go out and get drunk and you can, you know, take your top off. There's not going to be any morality police coming along. But at the same time, simultaneously, they'll, you know, gut unions. They'll take, they'll give you precarious uh, housing opportunities, precarious employment opportunities. So these individuals will call themselves in Fine Gael and Labour to a degree because they did cut the single parent's allowance when a child reaches the age of seven. But then we have people that are calling themselves feminists. But you can't call yourself a feminist if you are removing 
or making women impoverished. And if the child that that woman is looking after is also a girl, you are hurting two women. But then they say that we are feminists. But it's not feminism, it's lifestyle feminism. Feminism and any type of liberalism has always been about helping the disenfranchised, helping, you know, uh, people of colour, minorities, traveller women. So, like, they'll call themselves feminists, but they're not doing anything. To, you know, they're standing over direct provision where there's women of colour in those situations. There's, you know, in the travelling community and various other minorities and people. is a type of classism. You know, the, the liberalism is a false kind of liberalism when it comes up to a kind of inherent classism that they had towards those women when they took away those things. So, you know, you can't say you're not racist and then stand over direct provision. Do you know what I mean? And things like that. Yeah. So there's a liberalism there that exists, but as soon as the liberalism costs anything, they will essentially pull back on it. So they will give us anything that doesn't necessarily relent power on their part. So all of these constitutional amendments are all things that not are not going to... Tomorrow will change nothing, but they won't put in things like the right to water in our constitution, the right to a home... They, they won't put in things that will actually need to, for them to get their ass in gear to basically save the environment because, you know, the 21st century is going to be defined by war and ecological disaster and it's already upon us and we can see it and the house is on fire and yet it's like living with a person who's saying, well, I'm a liberal and the house is burning and they said, well, I'm not going to put that fire out, I'm just going to move to another room, you yeah. know? So, uh, you know, cost-free you know, liberalism. Like, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. cost-free liberalism yeah. and it's, um, it doesn't cost them anything as soon as it comes up against the fiscal conservatism and it's something that needs to be challenged and it's something that needs to be called out and, um, yeah, you know, if they, they really believed in it, but I don't think they do, you know, it's, the real religion is markets, the real religion is, in, in, in market sense, is neoliberalism. And just co- coming back, just, Briefly there to the role of the artists like yourself. Uh, there are artists like yourself, again, and others who are very engaged with social justice. Yeah. You find very few artists who are what you might call right-wing artists. Why is that? Yeah, I thought, I, do you know, there is a few in America. That's a good question. It's, it's a really kind of interesting area. I suppose always with art, because you're on the periphery and you do yourself live on the breadline, you are and find uh, solidarity with other people who are poor because even though you may talk in a more florid fashion, <laughs> you know, like to you know, have a different way, a poetic way of saying things, you actually have more in common with those people who are along along the fault lines than you have with any kind of businessman. And um, you know, so but there are there are right wing. I think in America, it kind of takes a different different tact because it's mixed in with a type of nationalism and a type of racism and a type of, uh, whereas in Ireland, you know, yeah, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not really sure. I think it goes by what country you're in, you know. There's definitely right-wing artists in England. I'm not too sure there's too many right-wing artists in Ireland. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one other thing that occurs to me, um, and as you say yourself, when, when you are driven by that, that, that thirst for social justice on one level, as a number of artists are, is, are the facilities there, are the opportunities there to express that, or is there a resistance to that in some institutions to the extent that they don't really want to know about it? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, as long... The Arts Council is great because... And I think it was the ex-minister, John O'Donoghue, who said this, you know... He didn't really want that to do with the Arts Council, and he was right. He did, I don't, that's not... He said that he should treat them with, at arm's length, and he was right about that because it's our money, as we know, our taxes are. So when that goes into the arts, it benefits everybody, but... Any kind of artistic institution that is government funded, that is giving out funds, needs uh, needs independence. And the Arts Council has that. What this government has done, they've basically invented this thing, Creative Ireland, which is uh, 
yeah, Creative Ireland, which was invented by the same people that did the Wild Atlantic Way and the uh, Special Communications Unit. Some corporate governance in this thing. This is run directly from the Arts Council, from the Arts Ministry. So, you know, they basically said they wanted to set about um, a unique proposition of what Irish art is. Government doesn't say to that, to get to say what that is. We do, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. artists are contrarians. They all say the different things to each other. So the idea, that all that was, was a marketing campaign, essentially to prove to the world that austerity not only, not only is successful, but here in Ireland it has worked. The gathering, you know, the 1916 celebrations, job done. When I, and they wanted to essentially co-opt artists and actors and writers into this marketing drive and that's what it was at all the words of marketing drive so there is a conservatism i'm saying this about not right wing there's left wing views in irish arts but there's a lot of people only people who can afford to be an artist can be artists so what happens is there's a monoculturalism that exists and it's starting to happen in britain because they've reintroduced third level education fees only the richest people can go to college. So Jimmy McGovern, who is a, a working-class writer, said, you know, there's a reason most of these actors are cumberbatches and they've all, 7% of them, public school boys, but it seems like they take over every part. And that's because they've got rid of free third-level education, which means no more free art school. They've got rid of a benevolent welfare system. So that means you don't get people like the Beatles anymore or Albert Finney. All of those great kind of working-class leftist kind of artists that would have came up in Britain in the 1950s and the post war period because of Clement Attlee's you know government and all those great things they did they created a hotbed of talent for art to exist and to become from every background and that's only started in Ireland since 1997 really with free toward level education so you get people like me out there or Grace Doyas and the majority of us now are actually from working class backgrounds so what has to happen is I think the old guard of conservative kind of people that run arts institutions are fading away. There's a newer generation coming up. People like, you know, waking the feminists are wrestling for power against those old kind of patriarchy. I was in London recently. You know, the idea that we are only now giving female writers a voice on a national stage. The British theatre artists I was working with found that idea quaint. They were like, man, we, you know, that was 30 years ago for us. So we have a lot of work to do in that sense. But I think there is a conservatism, but I think that's changing. And I think, you know, I do still think there is a conservatism in the arts in certain degrees. But um, because ultimately people live in fear because they have to pay their mortgage that if they say something against government that somehow they'll lose funding. Now I'm not saying that there is a direct correlation between that. That's just a perception. Nobody can prove that. But certainly if there is the Arts Council is independent then that's brilliant but if there is a new type of arts funding body and I wanted to say something that was let's say, you know, discriminatory against government or government policy, would they give me money, you know? And fairness, Culture Ireland, which is great, they sent Dublin Old School to Edinburgh and they also sent it to um, to the National Theatre and the Film Board also sent Dublin Old School to the cinemas and they also sent it to um, to to Britain. And both of those things don't paint Dublin or Ireland in the best manner, you know what I mean? So I do believe in the independence of the artistic bodies, but I am hoping that that independence, which I think Fianna Gael are trying to claw back with yeah. these new in- initiatives, I'm very, very wary of what they're up to. I'm very wary of what they're doing. And I want them to maintain the independence of the Arts Council and the Irish Film Board because I think they are independent and I think they're doing great things to spread our real vision of Ireland. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Until next time, thank you for listening.